Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Hey, everybody. Today, you hear an exclusive Ask Me Anything. It is Monday, so that means that it's an Ask Me Anything with Turning Point USA activists from all across the country. If you guys want to get involved with Turning Point USA, go to tpusa.com, tpusa.com. I take questions straight from students on the front lines fighting for freedom and liberty. If you want to help out those students or become a freedom-fighting student, go to tpusa.com, tpusa.com. It's Monday, so I'm taking your questions. Buckle up, everybody. Here we go. Go. Charlie, what you've done is incredible here. Maybe Charlie Kirk is on the college campus. I want you to know we are lucky to have Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk's running the White House, folks. I want to thank Charlie. He's an incredible guy. His spirit, his love of this country. He's done an amazing job building one of the most powerful youth organizations ever created, Turning Point USA. We will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives, and we are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Who is your wireless provider? AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile. What if I told you Pure Talk USA uses the exact same network as one of those carriers? Same towers, same exact coverage, but literally costs you half. I know it sounds crazy. When I first heard about Pure Talk, I thought, this has got to be too good to be true. We checked it out. Fact check, true. Fact check, true. Pure Talk, true. So Sarah from Abilene, great place. Service is amazing. Love the price. Speed is quick. The reception is perfect. So you just sw- it's, you just switch, okay? Don't give the money directly to AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile. They're funding BLM. Cut that nonsense out. Why are you not shopping your values? They've politicized everything. Put your money where your worldview is. Average person is saving $400 a year. Remember, fact check, true. So why is it so cheaper than AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile? No retail stores, no billion-dollar year ad campaigns. And by the way, it's run by a U.S. veteran who loves his country, unlike the apparatchiks that run These other companies, that's all I have to say, they all hate America. This company loves America. Their customer service is right here in the U.S. So here's what you do. It's so easy. They send you a card, SIM card, in, out, boom, save money. No loss for you, just a win. But it is a loss for the anti-American telecom companies that want you to suffer. So here's what you do. Unlimited talk, unlimited text, plus two gigs of data for just $20 a month. Grab your phone, dial pound 250, say the keyword Charlie Kirk. It's a special password. Say the keyword Charlie Kirk. That's pound 250. Say keyword Charlie Kirk. When you do, you'll save 50% off your first month. First, I want to say welcome to Phoenix, guys. Um, so thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's awesome to have all you guys here. And boy, is it an important time in our country right now. And I just want to first thank our staff, Amy and Andrew. You're doing an amazing job. Let's give it up for all the hard work that they put into And the whole field staff. Um, it is, uh, it's such a treat to be able to be with all of you, and we'll see who goes back to school this, uh, this fall. Any schools going all online that are here? A couple? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, for sure opening? Any schools for sure opening? There you go. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, more common sense than not. Um, 
we're, we're going to see what, uh, what happens this semester. But I think it's fair. The first thing I want to say is your dedication to this organization and this movement is incredible because you see all the anti-Americanism happening in our country. You see the deletion of our history, all the arson and the terror. Where is that going to go next? To a university near you. All of that pent-up energy, all of that nonsense is going to translate to every single one of your university campuses where they're going to try to push forward complete nonsense uh, around 1619 Project, our history, all that, the taking down statues, most of the energy behind that is going to go straight to your campus. And so, look, there's, let's just not you know, beat around the bush. It's going to be harder than ever to be a conservative on campus. It's going to be harder than ever to wear that hat on campus. And I think that's why all of you are here, right, is because you know, you know exactly what you signed up for. Um, a month ago, our political organization, Turning Point Action, we hosted the president here in Phoenix. Uh, where, who was there? Anyone attended that? It was really fun. That was one of the hardest things we've ever had to do, and we did it. And uh, it, it was hard. We had a 10 days notice in the midst of a pandemic. The mayor tried to shut us down. You know, there was all these sorts of different backlashes that were trying to happen and couldn't find insurance. We still did it. And one of the most amazing things that I found in that event is the president gave a phenomenal speech. But we had a couple turning point chapter leaders come up and give testimonies. And what was amazing is that the student testimonies were even more based than the president. It was like, we're losing our country. If you dare say that you're a conservative, you get destroyed on social media. It is the modern day equivalent of the cultural Gestapo that's going to come after you. And we're here for a reason because we know the cost. We know that it's going to be difficult. We're probably going to lose all the people that we call friends, but we'll find new ones, right? And we're going to fight. We're not going to let them destroy our country. And this is no longer a public policy debate, right? Like a lot of people say, oh, you know, this is a battle of, you know, what different ideas. In some ways, that's true. In other ways, this is a, this is a long, drawn-out culture war for the kind of country that we want to live in. And now that's the kind of conversation we, we want to have, right? Because you're all going to have families God willing, at some point, hopefully soon. And what kind of country do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a country where you can't even mention Thomas Jefferson or some crazy lunatic screaming at a grocery store? Of course not. Do, do, you, want to, do you want to live in a country where you can't even have the flag without someone being offended? But who, who cares if they're offended, by the way? That's not, why, why should that be your problem that you have, to, you have to accommodate that? Where you have to rename high schools that are called James Madison in Virginia? Where you have to rename George Washington University? So what ended up happening is this, is that the virus came from China, and we'll talk about that, and locked down the entire country. And then it's, it's a really perplexing thing how people don't understand this, is we take away people's time at their gym, take away their sports, take away church, the most important thing, or your religious you know, service that you go to, and we wonder why people get angry for no reason after eight weeks of that. It's probably one of the most obvious things we could have figured out, right? Like, oh, you can't go to church on Easter, can't go on Palm Sunday, can't see your friends, there's no sports, and you're an awful person because of the color of your skin. Like, I'm sorry, what? Like, and, and then by the end of May, we're wondering why our cities are burning down. And then if you dare disagree with the arson, the terror, all of a sudden they don't say, oh, that's an interesting point. They say, shut up, racist. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't like it when inner cities burn because – I care about black lives, and I don't want to see black-owned businesses burn. Shut up, racist. I'm sorry. What? Um, and 
it all kind of gets back to this now new cultural tyranny that has happened. And I think all of you have seen this happen in your own personal life. And the last time we had here at the we sat here at the cha- chapter leadership summit was last year. It was a different country that we lived in. So we just have to admit that in the last eight weeks, our country has changed dramatically and not for the better. It's changed culturally, where people are losing their jobs or saying all lives matter. People, and by the way, I, I look at these, some of these examples. I'm like, that's how I know we live in a decent country because we have to go out of our way to try to find racism in our country. Trader Joe's, for example. You guys know Trader Joe's? I work there. You work at Trader Joe's? Okay, I'm sure <laughs> you, you would resonate with this example. So uh, you heard about this recent controversy, right? So they, someone, some self-righteous, overly educated lunatic that works at Trader Joe's, not you, um, was, <laughs> was walking through the grocery store and work and very resentful, bitter, arrogant person. And they were like, oh my gosh, I'm so offended. There is a salsa here or some sort of guacamole or something called Trader, Trader Jose's. So the person loses their mind, right? Just total meltdown screaming, probably just flailing the arms, outrageous, right? Writes this long letter that some professor probably told them how to write, you know, how, the, perfecting the grievous in, grievance industry, right? Like how to become a professional complainer. And so then what ends up, so, so they, they write this thing, all these employees start to sign the letter and Trader Joe's comes out on this ridiculous apology campaign. Oh, we're so sorry. Cultural appropriation. We should never have called it Trader Jose's. Which, by the way, if any Jose's out there right now, I mean, if I was Jose, I'd be like so happy that I have a salsa named after me. It's like, I think it's kind of cool. I think that, so, so anyway, that's, first of all, that's how you know you live in a really decent country where you have to go out of your way to try to find all this nonsense. Like, oh, wow, we live in such a horrible country because salsas are named Trader Jose's. It's like, really? No. I, I, do you think, in the 1870s, when people were getting lynched by the color of their skin, they really cared if that there was a salsa by the name of Trader Jose's. Like, no, this is when you know you've actually reached peak decency as a country and peak reasonability, where you have to go out of your way to try to find racism that doesn't exist. And then you ignore it in your own ranks, which is even more astonishing, right? And then you ignore it in your own ranks, where you have the governor of Virginia, who we still haven't, he still hasn't told us whether he was wearing blackface or wearing the KKK outfit. It would be one of the two. He said, I, I don't know, I'm pictured here. I haven't really... I don't remember. I'm like, wait, hold on a second. If you don't remember, one should be probably a disqualifier unless you were like Tuesdays were the KKK days and Thursdays were the blackface days. Like, I don't know. It's, one should probably be the disqualifier. I mean, what, what's amazing is that what he didn't come out and say is that, okay, I never wore the KKK outfit. And then he, the blackface probably would have been an easier analogy. Instead, he kind of had this like meandering thing in the middle, like, I don't know which one it is. So you've worn a KKK outfit before? Is this something you do regularly? So they ignore racism in their own ranks. So what's end up happening where the left are actually become the most racist people you could possibly imagine. And then they call us the racist, and it's so incredibly Orwellian, and we'll get into what that actually means. Because um, people put those terms around a lot, and it's more true than ever. Where if you dare have a conversation around, well, actually, I think there's only one race, the human race. They say you're a racist for saying that. When all of a sudden you say, I actually think I care how people act and not how they look. Like, shut up. Stop saying that. You're a racist. Like, well, no, I actually say that because I mean it. And so actually they care about race more than any other American political movement since the most divisive, horrific American political movements we've ever seen. And, and it really is a troubling thing because a lot of your friends, and I'm sure all of you have these experiences, and I'm, I don't know if any of you participated in this. I hope not, but maybe that's okay. Uh, posted those black squares and I spoke out against it and went really viral and everyone said I'm the worst human being ever. And it's, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be misconstrued. I, I get it if you're trying to protest uh, injustice. I just... I just think it's very incredibly intellectually and philosophically inconsistent if one emotive video of a singular evil cop who did something evil to a black individual of which we do not know whether or not it was racially motivated or not because they had a relational history 
but before that, and three cops that did nothing, all of a sudden that's a reason that we have to all you know, act like, as if our whole country is a mistake. Like, that seems like a really overreaction and something that's not appropriate. So then I spoke out against it, and the people, we have to abolish the police, we have to do all these sorts of things. And from my own perspective in the suburbs of Chicago, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and a lot of my friends that I grew up with were posting these black squares. And I was like, your entire life was largely made possible because of the security and the stability brought to you by police officers. And they, they were completely colorblind in our home community of Wheeling, Illinois. Anyone from the suburbs of Chicago? Maybe not. Uh, okay, yeah. So there you go. Um, and you, you know these kind of communities. They're just very safe, and they're very, there's police everywhere. They're outside, of the, they're outside of the schools. They're outside of the department stores. They're everywhere. And you just respect the police. And all these people are like, yeah, now we need to defund the police. I'm like, really? That seems comp- incredibly hypocritical for someone whose entire life was largely made possible thanks to civil society existing, and civil society exists because we have laws, and you need people to enforce those laws. I mean, that's a pretty logical way of looking at life. And yet, these self-righteous, entitled suburbanites were all of a sudden saying, oh my gosh, look at how awful and horrible our country is. And so that's an interesting thing, that one particular video that happened, which of course none of us, and that was the other thing that none of us agreed with. Did anyone ever actually agree that they said, oh, we're so divided over this? Like, really? In order to be divided, you have to people on both sides. Like, there's only one side here. Outrageous. Wrong. Next thing. Like, that's basically how that went, right? It wasn't as if we were like, you know, there's another side to the story. It was kind of like, I think this is pretty cut and clear. Arrest him. Convict him. Not going to defend him, right? And instead, they just like, oh, America's historically divided. I'm like, well, what we might be divided about is burning down a city bad. You think burning down a city good? Like, fine. I'll be divided around that. Like, you know. <laughs> Just call me an anti-arsonist any day. Okay, that's fine. Like, I think that that's probably a bad thing for civil society. And so now all of us and all of you in particular are now part of something that is incredibly dangerous. And it's not because of you. You have now entered into something that could make or break all of Western society, which it, we, we very well could become a country, and I pray not because we're getting close to that, and it's this way in certain parts of the country, where we're going to judge people on the color of their skin. And we have become more racist than we, than we could possibly imagine, not as a con- the left has, where they say you as a white person, well, you must be evil. All white people are a problem. Well, that I, I, you're, you're basically categorizing entire groups of people just based on their immutable characteristics. That did not go well in the 20th century. And it's just evil. It's, anti, it's anti-biblical. It's, anti-lib- it's anti-American. Every, every way you could possibly imagine it. And, and that's not to say that we should, we should not have a conversation around Race. I actually have. A, I'm willing to have the conversation. It's them who's not willing to have the conversation. It's they're the ones that actually go around and they shut you up if you dare start to say, "Well, let's actually talk about the statistics about how, according to the Washington Post, which is questionable at best, even they said 15 unarmed black men were killed by police officers last year." And you look into the statistics of it. Even the 15, like, well, some of them said they had a weapon. Some of them had a car, and they said that's unarmed. I'm like, that's kind of a strange definition. And also, you, you ask yourself the question, well. Why is, that, why is that happening? And then you have the overly spoiled brat LeBron James last night take a knee and he wears Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter and he thinks that it's the biggest outrage in the world. It's like so interestingly, there's little to no commentary at all about black people killing black people in the inner cities of our country. And I'm not excusing one evil for another. They say, oh, that's just a red herring. I'm like, well, no. If, if your entire argument is about a systemic problem, right, then let's look at the entire systemic data set, right? <laughs> it's like your whole argument is that this is not just an isolated incident. Well, then prove it to me that it's not an isolated incident. And don't just show me four videos and say, see, it happens all the time. Like, that's really lazy thinking, right? There's 3 million blacks that are arrested every single year in this country. And 15, 15 out of 3 million last year 
where an unarmed individual that was shot and killed by a police officer, and of which many of whom were the correct confrontation and using of force because they said they had a weapon or they used, they used a car, three of the 15 are people that were charged with murder for good reason. Okay, so three individual incidents, incidents out of three million, that's a pretty remarkable data set when you think about it. I mean, could you have that kind of success rate of anything that you do? I mean, you could not have a restaurant that has that kind of success at not poisoning their, you know, their, the people that come to there. It's incredible, actually. It actually goes to show that American policing is not actually broken. It actually generally works. And that's not to say there's a bad police. I deal with them all the time. And they say, Charlie, you don't know what it's like to be threatened by a police officer. I don't know about you guys. When I see lights in my rearview mirror, I get nervous, okay? So I don't know about this whole thing about, like, oh, my gosh, everyone, you, you have a special privilege. Like, I've gotten tickets. Like, I've gotten those things. They say, well, you don't know what it's like to be gunned down and killed. Well, neither do you because you're still breathing. So, like, I don't really – it's like it's, it's the kind of – that argument from authority is a really – And so I think you have to have a comprehensive conversation around – they don't want to have a conversation around data. They say, well, all the numbers are skewed. I'm like, okay, well, the one number that probably is not skewed is deaths, okay? I mean, that's probably a pretty final number, right? So I think we can agree on that. Like, no, even that would skew. Okay, well, the what – you don't believe in any numbers? And the postmodernists say, no, we don't believe in any numbers. And that's, that's quite a ridiculous statement. And so they – what you guys have all are all entering into, and you know this, that's why you're here, is that you're, you basically could lose everything. And you're young, so you don't have a lot materially to lose, but you could lose all your friends, your reputation, all these sorts of things. So my first thing is you have to be incredibly precise in how you talk about these things. And I'm very, I'm very careful, but one wrong word, all of a sudden you could, that you don't even mean, all of a sudden your entire job opportunities and employment could be completely absolutely canceled, if you will. I don't like that term, cancel culture. I think it's doesn't even do justice for what they do. I mean, they, they want us destroyed. I mean, they want every, if they had a button, they would destroy every single one of our lives. And I've dealt with this intimately many, many times. These are people that pathologically want the complete and total personal destruction of anyone that doesn't agree with them on every single issue, which goes to a broader point that these are very resentful and bitter people. They just are. I mean, imagine how resentful you must be to go kick a girl out of going into Marquette University because she does a TikTok video saying that Donald Trump is our president. This is what happens. And I don't know if she ends up coming into the school or not. She had, after a huge appeal. But they basically interrogated her like, like Guantanamo Bay saying – I'm sorry? Good. Well, she should become part of the Turning Point group. But, or how about the student at Fordham University, uh, young man, who posted a remembrance post to Tiananmen Square with a firearm, constitutionally protected – and the campus says, he's not allowed on campus anymore. It's an Asian individual. And they said, you're not allowed on campus anymore. And so just, and I could go through example through example. You guys have seen these. I mean, it happens 50 times a day, right? People renaming sports teams. I'm like, that's a really strange thing, how you got from an evil cop killing an individual to all of a sudden renaming an NFL sports team. That, how, do, how does it happen? I mean, and it happens mostly and mainly, and you guys know this, growing up in this country, is that conservatives haven't fought for anything in the last couple of years. Like, like we, 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 you, we think we're fighting? I mean, you guys are, but generally, and I, I don't mean this to be super, super intergenerational, right? But a lot of these older conservatives, they think fighting is like a legislative argument, and you go take the person out for a steak dinner afterwards. Like, that's not fighting, okay? Fighting is holding the line more so than ever and punching the left back metaphorically twice as hard. And it's like, no, you're a bitter racist. Go away. Like, you're not going to be running a, a tyranny over our children, because that's what you're doing. Like you're, you're trying to say you're anti-racist. You are the most bitter, resentful, stereotypical, prejudiced, racist person I've ever met. 
Nicole Hannah-Jones, who runs the 1619 Project for the New York Times. She hates white people. She said it. And she should be completely excommunicated. I mean, she should still be allowed to speak, but no one should take her seriously because she has said, and I'm paraphrasing, you guys can get the exact quote, that basically white people are the problem with the world and all these sorts. The most brutal thing in American world history has always been white people rising up. I'm like, my gosh. I mean, first of all, you always have to say, what if you replace the color, like how that would be? you know, portrayed, I say, you're basically no different than a eugenicist in 1910. I mean, basically what you are saying is something that is so incredibly corrosive and divisive. But if you guys end up saying that when you go back to school this fall, you're going to be called all the worst names in the world. So here's my other piece of advice for you. You just got to accept it. Don't believe it. Don't tolerate it when they say it, but accept that they're going to call you those names. Okay. And don't be afraid to call it back at them. Do not be afraid to say, hold on a second, Um, do you believe in black-only dormitories? Yes, you're an unbelievable racist, and I'm going to call you that. Well, I'm not a... They don't know what to do when you call them that, by the way. They don't know how to... They don't know how to process that. They don't. They don't know how to do that. And I don't come at that lightly. But if they're all of a sudden saying that we need to segregate people based on their race, like, my goodness, is the Democrat Party going back to their roots? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And so, so look, there's, there's, a, there's a tone to this. And you guys, I could feel it in, how, in your activism and what you're doing and why you're here, which is, like, if we do nothing, there's not a country for us to live in. And look, I'm not, I'm not super big on all blame the parents. It's kind of like an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thing, right? Everything before us was wrong. I don't believe that. I think there was pl- plenty of good decisions and bad decisions. But if I were to be critical of the generation that preceded us, is they, got, they grew incredibly apathetic, and they thought that just by default this experiment would continue. That they just thought that, us, that our generation would somehow inherit this beautiful gift uninterrupted. And you guys are seeing it happen every single day, every day, where people are taking down the American flag because they say it's offensive, where WNBA players are walking off the court during the national anthem. And you know what's so funny about me, that whole thing, is I would always say, well, it's not going to stop with the kneeling. I always said that. The kneeling is ridiculous and outrageous and I think immoral, self-righteous, narcissistic, and nihilistic. But besides that, it's a great thing. But, and I said, it's not going to stop there. Just wait until they walk off the court. They're never going to do that. They're doing it. Next thing you know, WNBA walking off the court. I see, how is that any different than someone that works for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? Like, how is your reaction to the U.S. National Anthem different than someone that works for the Chinese Communist Party? Like, what would they do during our national anthem? They would actually probably offer more respect. Like, they would probably actually stand and just, like, let it be, you know, let it happen, and that's it. it. To walk off the court during our national anthem, imagine how much bitter resentment, hatred you must have for this beautiful gift that we have been given. And so, look, it's up for us right now to fight. You hear this a lot, but here's the one thing I've learned about the left, is they're incredible cowards, all of them. And they act like they're big bullies. These people are miserable human beings, and they're actually very, very weak. They are. And they, they make it seem as if they have big strong man syndrome. When conservative and, decent, conservative and decent, reasonable people rise up and you stand for truth, they run for the hills. They don't know how to process that. They don't. And yes, it will come at great personal cost for every single one of you. Because every single one of you this fall is going to be challenged intimately. Called the worst names in the book. Threatened to kick you off campus. More so than ever, this campus, they will target every single one of you personally in a way that will make, and some of you have already been that way, but also understand what you're fighting for. It's not insignificant. It's for the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. Our parents decided not to fight. Some of them did. Most of them didn't, right? They went and got their jobs, and all of a sudden they sent their kids to the very same indoctrination factories to go teach them to hate America, right? And so what you're on in that college campus right now and where you're going into 
is probably one of the most important moments in American history. We're, we're actually basically going to come to a decision whether or not we want to be thankful for this great country or angry for this country, like, like angry that we live in this country. And I think all of you agree that we've been given this unbelievable gift that civil society and free speech and the Second Amendment and the Constitution and I can work hard and own private property and build a stable family, that's not a guarantee. None of that is. It can just vanish where all of a sudden you have to take a knee based on the color of your skin, where all of a sudden you don't get a fair hearing at a court, where all of a sudden they could just completely digitally assassinate you because they don't like what you have to say. And that's, that's a country that, quite honestly, I don't want to live in and I know you don't want to either. And so that's why... A couple of the takeaways, and then we'll get to some questions. We'll kind of do an AMA that will air on our, our podcast. So don't ask anything you guys don't want to have rebroadcast to, to potentially millions of people, which is, um, which is we haven't fought for far too long. The younger generation is changing that. We're changing it. Young conservatives, I say this to the Senate politicians that have no backbone at all, and they think fighting is like sending out a tweet being – it's so funny. I, I, I mean, they, I, I, I talked to one of these senators who will not be named – um, and he's like, yeah, I've really been fighting hard. And you see that tweet I sent saying, and I, I looked at the tweet and I read it and I was like, yeah. Uh, he was like, taking down the monuments is illegal according to U.S. Section 263. I'm like, you think this is fighting? Like, you know what fighting is? It's I think that Senator Tim Kaine should be kicked out of the United States Senate for lying on the Senate floor for saying America invented slavery. That's what fighting looks like. I think that Nancy Pelosi's a bitter racist. I think that's what fighting looks like. And so there are people that say, well, Charlie, we have to return to decency and mutual respect. Look, I'm not an indecent person. You guys have seen enough of my content probably by now that I listen and I have compassion and I try not to get too excited. And I, I I do generally agree with that. But I'm also not going to be tolerant of their nonsense. And so that's a very important distinction, meaning I'm not going to allow lies to come across my radar screen without me saying something or doing something about that. I'm not going to be tolerant of an injustice of a young man that gets kicked out of his university because he does a Tiananmen Square memorial post. Meanwhile, you have the girl at Harvard who does a TikTok who says, I am going to stab anyone and everyone who says all lives matter. And she gets to stay at school. I'm not okay with that, and you shouldn't be either. And so there's a... The, the, the 200 people or so in this room right now, do not underestimate your impact. So here's another thing is a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I can make a difference. Well, you being here, you know you can make a difference. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? But even if you could, if you, even if you, you were told, hey, what you're going to do probably won't make a difference, would you still do it? That's a very interesting question. The answer is, of course, because you do what is moral regardless if the output is going to be in your favor. See, people ask all the time, they say, well, Charlie, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I always ask, I always stop, I say, are you asking that because you want an excuse not to fight? Are you asking that because you want me to answer it in a way where all of a sudden you're like, this was fun, Charlie. I'm going to go back to not doing politics goodbye. Whether you're optimistic or pessimistic is irrelevant to how hard you fight. It's actually you must have a moral good that you are seeking for civil society and you pursue it. And if you win, great. I think we will because we have truth and they don't. I think we will win because we have reason and they don't, and we have decency and history and logic and facts, and they have feelings and angry people. And so that's why I think we will win. But that's what all of you have to understand is that the, also you might not even see the impact that you're making, the ripple effect. Understand the power of a singular leader on a very liberal campus. Who here thinks they have the most liberal campus in the room? What's your school? Moravian College in Pennsylvania. How, give me another one. Yes. 
Which one? Yeah, that's a, that's a real beauty. Yeah. <laughs> Illinois State. Illinois State. That's, that's not as liberal. Is that liberal? In Paradise Valley? God help us all. Yeah. College of Charleston? That is very liberal. One more. Yes. Which one? Is that, is that, you think that one wins? Okay, we'll, we'll say you win, okay? So, congratulations. You have the school most similar to Stalingrad, right? So it's great. Um, even if you think you can't make a difference at that one school, which obviously you're here and you believe in that, or you might get dispirited because every single one of you is going to lose hope and you're going to lose spirit at some point throughout this process. Is it worth it? I've lost all my friends. First of all, I think that, just so you understand, I could look at this now from a 26-year-old. I know how hard it is to lose friends. I lost every single friend I had in high school, every single one, okay? Not only that, they go to reporters and try to ruin my life, okay? Saying that I'm this awful person, all these sorts of things that I went to high school with. So I get it, okay? You guys have all lost friends. I'm right there with you. Every single friend that I play football with now thinks I'm like the worst person on the planet because whatever, right? Because I like freedom. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> but I get it, and I'm right there with you, and I, I sympathize, and I connect with you on that. So I think that there has to be a moment here where we can understand and we can agree that what we are doing actually really does matter and it is moral and it's going to have an outcome that can help save the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. And so even in that one impact, the ripple effect of people seeing a singular leader can change that community. It can get other people to come out of the woodwork. And do not underestimate that. Do not, do not underestimate what happens when good people fight. And people say, Charlie, why is America in the condition that it's in? It's because people who believe the right things didn't defend those things. That's why we're in the condition that we're in. They believe it. Oh, yeah, I love the Constitution. Oh, yeah, I love my country's history. Okay, what have you done to defend it recently? Well, you all have a great answer to that. And I, I speak at you know, groups all across the country that are you know, older Tea Party type groups, right, where the average age is 78 or 81. And they say, well, what am I supposed to do? I say, fight as hard as a Turning Point USA activist is fighting at their Turning Point USA chapter where they get spit at, they get called the worst names, they've lost their friends, they get graded differently, they get kicked out of lecture halls, they get ostracized. Sound familiar, anyone? Right? Where your whole life changes that beautiful college experience that people think exists where you go to the fraternity, sorority, you meet all these great friends, you go to the football game, all of that disappears where you all of a sudden become a public enemy number one because you dare wear that hat or you dare say you like free markets. That's the kind of sacrifice our country needs to engage in. But for you guys that are already the fighters, that are already here, you have to understand, first of all, not to give up and not to give in when you get demoralized, because you will. It will happen in October at some point where you never see the sun at Binghamton or whatever, right? Because that's what ends up happening on the East Coast. You only you see the sun for like 30 minutes, you know, from October on. And all of a sudden, people are screaming at you. And the administration is doing an entire character assassination campaign against you. And they're writing articles in the school newspaper against you. And you say, no one stands with me. I am all alone. What is the point? I'm going to give up. And if you do give up, you are going to give them exactly what they want. The, 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 what they are counting on, their victory is built in to conservative surrender. That's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for more people to just give up and say, fine, you run the country. I don't want to do this anymore. You've destroyed everything I, I care about. That's why this gathering is so important, because now all of a sudden you have other friends you're going to meet from all across the country that can help you through these moments. That's number one. And number two, that sort of, number two, going through that kind of trial 
is actually going to help you longer in your life, more so than I can ever put into words. See, college right now generally creates very, very weak people for an uncomfortable and sufferable world. But you are going to become strong in college for that uncomfortable and sufferable world, where your peers that want all the difference of opinions to be removed, for your peers that can't hear an idea about American history without them screaming belligerently, you're all going to be so tough, you're going to succeed. Where all of a sudden you're going to be like, yeah, I've dealt with more than that. Your shoulders will grow stronger. You're not going to ask for your environment to become safer. Because if we're honest about the world, it's actually an awful place. I mean, it's full of suffering. It's guaranteed that you're going to come across some sort of adversity. So shouldn't college be about building stronger people for that world? Isn't that what college should be? Well, all of you are getting what actually college should give you in that sense, not the education sense, but the experiential sense, where you're going to be a tougher person by the time you graduate. Because you've been called every single worst name in the book you could possibly imagine. You understand what real friendship is, not this fake friendship where you, you know, whatever that is all about. You understand exactly who you are as a person and how far you can be pushed, right? You know what it's like to work hard for something that there's no reward except probably just persecution. You'll be a tougher, better person from that. I know that might not be like, oh, well, what is that? Well, when you're 28, all of a sudden you'll look back when you were in college as a Turning Point USA chapter leader. You're like, you know what? Okay, now that a tornado hit our town or some adversity that hits you, I have, the, I have the muscle mass, metaphorically, to deal with tough stuff, right? Because that's life. And college is supposed to be like that, and we've done the opposite. We've infantilized kids that go to college, and you know this. Can't hear opposite opinion, can't hear anything that you dare disagree with. We're just going to try to create a safer world for you, and that's a bunch of nonsense. We know that. So you guys are going to be rewarded exactly what you're doing here. And uh, you can have faith and have certainty in that. And also, understand that what you are fighting for is absolute truth. You are fighting for a decent civil society, and that should give you enough conviction. I know you all have it. And some people say, well, Charlie, you used to preach for the choir. Well, sometimes the choir needs a little preaching, because I understand it could be you could get dispirited, you can get run down, you can get hopeless, you can get pessimistic. I get all that. Throw all that away. Just look around you that in the midst of a time when you're not supposed to be gathering, you're not supposed to be together, there are hundreds of other freedom fighters that are willing to stake everything for the greatest country ever to exist. And guess what? That makes our generation different than the one before us. In the 70s and 80s, young conservatism was roughly loosely affiliated with Ronald Reagan. And guess what? They were the popular kids on campus. Seriously. On most campuses, it was like the cool thing to support Ronald Reagan. You think it's the cool thing to wear that hat? With a price that, that puts a public declaration of stop being a friend with me, right? And I think you all understand that price and that cost, but it is well worth it to keep on persevering and fighting. When running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and more. HR manager salaries are not cheap. They're an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding determinations that customize your policy to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, there are no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR today. Go to Bambi.com slash Kirk right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash Kirk. 
Spell BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash Kirk. Bambi dot com slash Kirk. Okay, let's do some questions until they kick me off stage. Um, yes. All right, Charlie. So just like you, you know, I care about uh, every group of Americans because I believe we're Americans first and foremost. And, uh, you know, it really makes me sad to see what's happening to a lot of our predominantly black communities and cities and yeah. in the country. And I just want to get to the root of uh, what's causing that. And I hear a lot of people suggest that, you know, it's socioeconomic conditions. We, we hear that argument a lot. So I just want to, you know, like I said, get to the root of what the issue is in those communities so we really know how to help them, which begs the question, if socioeconomic disparity can explain why uh, African-Americans are disproportionately represented in 50% of homicides, two times more rate, seven times more robberies than whites, despite making up 13% of the population, according to the FBI, considering the most dangerous cities in America with the highest percent of a black population are more dangerous than most third world cities in the world. And those third world cities are more impoverished and have worse education. So I'm just I'm just trying to figure out uh, like what this issue is so we can know how yeah. to help those. Well, I, I think that it's more than socioeconomic. So a study in Illinois where they, they, they surveyed prisoners, 70% of Illinois prisoners that were there for armed robbery, murder, arson, or rape grew up without a father in the home, 70%. So 70% of the Illinois prison prisoners were, have one thing in common. It's not their gang. It's not their color. It's not their religion. It's the fact they didn't grow up with a father in the home. We have hyper-feminized American society. And now you can go too far on the masculine spectrum too, okay? That's where you get ridiculous totalitarian governments, okay? But the balance is critical. The balance is biblical. The balance is necessary for a culture to succeed, right? Where you have analytical and reason with the passion and the emotion, right? And I'm, I'm somewhat generalizing, but this is basically true. I don't mean necessarily male and female. Let's talk just archetypically masculine and feminine. And in the black community in particular, we have subsidized fatherlessness to an extent where 77% of black children are born without a stable father in the home where you get more money if the father leaves you than if the father stays with you. What the ramifications of that is all of a sudden you have children being growing up without a father figure, which is incredibly necessary. And that's not to say that single mothers don't do a great job and a lot of people raised by single mothers are able to succeed. I'm not, this is not a slight at single mothers. It's not. In fact, I think single mothers are heroes. And I think that, that men who leave, men who leave women that's the ultimate coward, right? So by hyper-feminizing society and not talking bluntly and not talking um, with accountability to men and allowing them to leave women, it's just as much on the cowardly men who decided to act like a fool and run to the hills and not take responsibility as it is to the government policy that has actually augmented that. And so that's one big piece of it. And it's not Look, here's one thing that kind of the one statistic I can share with you that blows up a lot of the racial disparity statistics is everything you have said is correct, that blacks are more likely to commit murder, arson, all this, despite being a smaller portion of the population. It's because largely they do not have a father in the home. And this disproves the statistic of racial disparity more than any other, which is a black child raised by a mother and father who stay in the home is more likely to succeed on every single metric than a white child being raised by a single mother. So it's two-parent privilege. That is the true privilege that we should talk about. We do not talk about protecting and supporting strong and vibrant and stable families in our country. We do not. Instead, we 
Uh, I think Republicans focused far too much at times on just purely the economic, and we failed to realize that the family is directly related to the economic. And so you extrapolate this over a couple generations and over a couple decades, all of a sudden you start to see and realize um, entire communities where something has to replace the masculine. It's a very important point, though. So human beings have yearnings for three basic things, consciously or subconsciously. Now, Freud was wrong about a lot, but we take for granted what Freud was right about. And one of the things he got right about is that there is a struggle within us of a desire between the father and the mother, right? So every human being in some ways needs a masculine and a feminine influence, right? And that can be replaced. The third thing we need is a connection to the Almighty. So understand the connection to the Almighty, you might put government instead of that, right? You might put BLM instead of that, where that becomes your God, right? It becomes a man-made idol. So we can recognize that. But if you remove the masculine so completely from a black child's upbringing, well, what replaces that? Well, something, and usually it's going to be the gangbanger on the street by the time the kid is 9 or 10, where their idea of a strong, decisive alpha male who has his act together is actually the worst person in his entire community, especially for young Men Now, for young women that are raised in those communities, what's their idea of a good man? Where their idea of a good man is not a stable husband or a father or someone who is faithful. Instead, their idea of a good man is a gangbanger on the side of the street who's a criminal. Well, that's why they end up, unfortunately, disproportionately going after that. So a lot of this is childhood development. We do not talk about this. And I'm not saying that it's impossible for a child raised by a single mother to succeed. I'm not. In fact, I have plenty of examples of that, and I think I prefaced that correctly. I'm talking generally through the data set. When you have 77% of black kids that don't, black sons that don't see what it's like, what they want to emulate, black daughters that don't see what it's like, what they want to marry, and all of a sudden you combine those two forces together, and you have communities that are in total disarray, that shouldn't surprise anyone. And so the final point I'll say is this, is that BLM Inc., Okay, so I don't use the name of their organization intentionally because I think it's very important because the phrase is in itself true. It's a left-wing marketing scam because anytime that I say something negative about the phrase, it seems as if I'm saying something negative about the phrase when I'm actually attacking the Marxist disintegrationist organization that wants to destroy our country. So BLM Incorporated, which is nothing more than a Democrat Party money laundering scheme, They have it on their own website. They want to disrupt and destroy the Western-prescribed nuclear family. How is that any different than what they've already done? I mean, they want 100% of black kids without fathers. And so I, I, I am a huge believer. And for young ladies in this audience, you should want stronger men. You should want to demand stronger men. There's a crisis. The number one thing that I hear in confidence from young women is I cannot find men with their act together. And all of you men out there, you should take that as, well, maybe I should get my act together. And if you think you do, maybe you could do even better. And that's a serious thing. And some hyper-feminists say, Charlie, you hate women because you want stronger men. I'm like, no, I actually, I actually want what's best for everyone. I think it's good for men and good for women. I think that there's a balance there. And I think that the, the hyper-feminist movement has, first of all, it's been much more about hating men than empo- empowering women, much more. And we wonder why youth suicide for men is going up for 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. Well, maybe it's because you told them they were awful for the first decade of their life that they could understand language, that they have to just sit down and shut up and all this. Like, we're supposed to be perplexed when that actually has an output that we don't like. 
And so I, I don't discount that it can go into certain extremes, but there's something so beautiful in the construct of a, a husband and a wife, a mother and a father working cooperatively to build strong and stable families. And it worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And now we are seeing that it doesn't work when you systemically remove a critical piece of that equation. So thank you so much for the question. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So sports keep coming back. So does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball is now in full swing, and the NBA has also begun. There's no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And as sports start to return, BetOnline has sat down with Eddie George from the NFL, Robert Horry, seven times NBA champ, and Harold Reynolds from Major League Baseball to get their opinions on what it'll be like playing without fans and what they have called the fandemic. Visit betonline.ag. Don't forget to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome bonuses. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Charlie, this is an online question okay. on live stream. Sam Anderson asks, what materials do you recommend for students to study better, to be better prepared, to debate and defend conservative values? It's a great question. Um, there's a great website out there. I talk about it on my podcast. And by the way, if you guys are not yet subscribed to my podcast, you should be. Um, I'm sure all of you are, by the way. Okay. Thank you for that, by the way. We are number five in Apple News, right? Second biggest conservative podcast. So thank you for that. Thank you. We, um, we are in a uh, horse race with Shapiro. We'll see who wins. So, uh, and the... Um, so, book. So, I talked about this on my podcast. There's a great website called Thinker, T H I N K R.org. You can use my promo code, thinker.org slash Charlie. And I don't, I don't again, you don't me, I, I do not overly commercialize what I talk about. I just love the website because you can consume big ideas in like 15 to 20 minutes. They synthesize really long books and you can consume them really quick. Um, and so, and actually, unlike some of these other uh, sites that are out there that do something similar, they actually have really, really good books. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning, they have Jonah Goldberg's book, like all that sort of stuff. So they actually have center-right content there. So some books that I really actually recommend that you understand broadly, and then I, do underst- I, I really do recommend that you dive into it. I'm going to give you three books that I think are really important, especially for today's time. Um, Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell is one of the greatest books ever written. Thomas Sowell's a black economist. If you don't know who Thomas Sowell is, you're missing out. I'm telling you, this guy is one of the best. It's a, anything by Thomas Sowell's terrific. That book in particular actually answers the question prior than I could, where he says that we, 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 try to, we try to misapply data when it comes to discrimination far too much. Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell, that's number one. That's, also, that's part of um, Thinker. It's actually on their website. Uh, number two is a phenomenal book, especially for anyone out there that might just want to get their life in order and you want to just get a very cogent worldview. It's 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. A lot of you have read it. Reread it and understand it. Understand the deeper psychology behind it. It's absolutely phenomenal. It is terrific. And then number three, it's actually written by a Trump hater, um, but that's okay. He, hate, he He's said awful things about me. I actually never said anything bad about him because it's such a good piece of work. It was written in 2010 or 2011. It's called Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg. It's phenomenal. There's any book that describes how the furthest extrapolation of leftism, leftism is actually fascism. Um, and he predicted almost everything that's happening today almost a decade ago. That if you're arguing for universal health care and universal control and gun confiscation, and just to think that they're not going to use that power to shut up people they disagree with is one of the most silly things you could imagine. And so he makes the argument that the left has been more actually influenced by fascist forces than communist forces. It's a, fin- it's a brilliant argument. 
So I think those three are very applicable. And if you guys are really ambitious, read 1984 by George Orwell. Um, it's like reading basically the newspaper in real time. Um, and then for the, and I actually, I consume information differently. Everyone consumes information differently. And so sitting down and actually having me read a book, I do it every night um, and I make sure I do it. But I actually consume information the best by lecturers talking about big ideas. That's actually how I consume information better than almost anything else. And Hoover Institution is a great YouTube channel if you guys haven't checked it out. Uh, they're a think tank from Stanford University. Um, and they have all the Thomas Sowell archives on there, by the way. And so I actually process information better than that. And so if you guys are like uh, reading, you know, it's hard for me. I'm always on the run. I work out. That's fine. I encourage you guys to check out um, certain lecturers that are able to talk and discuss some of these really big ideas. And then also just more broadly, have an understanding um, of just a very specific be, you should be able to, and they will not teach a lot of this in college, just be able to tell the Spark Notes version. What did Plato stand for? What did Aristotle stand for? What did Socrates stand for? What did Aquinas, Augustine, Descartes, Hume, Burke, Locke? You just have to be able to kind of know that um, because they all have two or three things that are massively important in the creation of the West. Obviously more than that, but kind of the short version, like what did Machiavelli theorize? And, what did, and I know that some of it can get really deep in philosophy, but... Mind you, a lot of your philosophy departments aren't even teaching you this stuff intentionally because if you read it and you think about it, you're like, huh, interesting. John Locke said that rights come from God, not from government. Oh, that's how we got our system of government, right? Okay. They don't want you to know that because you actually might end up respecting our country, right? And so I highly encourage you to actually dive deep into these thinkers. Um, and, and of course, you could do Rousseau and you could do Marx and you could do Hegel and all these other left. You're probably getting a good dose of that anyway, I would imagine, right? Yeah, so I think you guys understand the left plenty. So I think for conservative audiences, I actually encourage you guys to dive into that. And for some of you that are like, I don't understand any of that stuff. And it's like, it's really hard and complicated. And I just am trying to just dive into the, just the ABCs of this stuff. That's perfectly fine too. Uh, our partners at PragerU does a great job. Uh, we at Turning Point USA, we have a lot of videos that come out a lot that I think are very digestible. So I truly appreciate the question. Next question. Uh, hi, Charlie. So my question is uh, pertaining to like a lot of the stuff that I see on social media um, that conservatives aren't really talking about. For example, like Breonna Taylor. Yeah. Um, like I've heard uh, lies that the police were made to like get slaves and stuff like that. Do you have any response to those? Well, yeah, the Breonna Taylor thing I spoke out against and I got some feedback. So I'm not going to dive into it now, but I think that there's a lot more to the story. Um, I got some feedback where people were on both sides of the issue. But look, I, it's a good point. I'm going to actually take this question differently than you might think. It's a good point because we, we operate in a different ecosystem as conservatives than what actually a lot of these people actually end up processing. And the fact that, and I'm just going to say this very bluntly, the fact that we, we mourned Breonna Taylor more than Kobe Bryant was actually really depressing to me. And Kobe, I'm not saying that you should not mourn one or more than the other, but let's just be honest. We mourned, you know, we mourned George Floyd and Breonna Taylor more. And this is asked the question. I mean, Kobe Bryant was exactly kind of what we want the black community to be, right? I mean, obviously he made some mistakes in his life, but he was the number one draft pick. No one believed in him. He was a devout Catholic, um, loved the Lord, Bible-believing Christian, all-star, ended up amassing huge amounts of wealth was a faithful father by everything that we know to be true, an amazing, um, an amazing icon for perseverance and for grit. I think that's an, that's an incre incredible icon, right? And the reason I think that we kind of forgot about it so quickly is because there wasn't a good villain. And that's really too bad. Like there wasn't someone we could blame for, right? It was the weather or it was a helicopter and all of that. And that just goes to show 
something that's really wrong with American society is that we couldn't blame the West that because Kobe Bryant died and so we just had to blame bad chance and bad luck and God's timing, right? When in reality, Kobe should be remembered as, here's a guy that really had his life organized. He did. He was a venture capitalist. He never spoke, he never spoke badly about Trump ever. He's like, I don't really get into that, which is a huge deal now. If you don't even say anything, it's like saying something, right? Um, and so that really troubled me because I think that, and I'm not saying that Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or that, I'm not making a comment either way of, you know, I'm, I'm saying you shouldn't mourn people that, you know, are, that pass away. I, I get, get, you understand what I'm saying with that. I'm being very specific with it. But in kind of the whole kind of national conversation of who we have remembered, I, I've been really saddened by kind of how we just don't pull – I think that Kobe Bryant should be the ideal in some ways. Like he was, he was one of the hardest working athletes of our entire generation. Kobe Bryant would, have take, would not have taken a knee for the national anthem. Kobe Bryant would not have taken a knee for the national anthem. Let me say that again. He loved his country. He did. He did. And every athlete that played with Kobe Bryant, he did veterans benefits. He gave money away to that. He played for Team USA and won a couple gold medals. And he said that was the best moment of his career when he got to represent his country, which I, I thought is a horrible place. And so I think that's a really important point that we have to, we can't just forget that. And so, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to get into the Breonna Taylor thing. I think it's nuanced. Um, there's, there's still evidence that's coming out that uh, it was a no-knock raid or it wasn't a no-knock raid. I'm not going to get into that today. But you guys can listen to future episodes so I can dive into that. So let's get to the next question. Hi, Charlie. My name is Veronica. I'm from California. And I just wanted to ask you such a two-part question regarding the election. I know that three and a half months away, and I'm just curious with the schools. Um, some of them are open. I don't know. But I know in California, um, they're a hybrid. They're like online and, and on campus. But I don't know as far as getting involved goes, what do you think yeah. is the prediction upon these three and a half months and are they going to open sooner or later? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, it's really incredible. So um, any anything political I say here today is myself personally, not on behalf of Turning Point USA. We're 501c3, so I just want to be very specific on that. Um, and I'm hosting a personal podcast here, so I just want to make sure I make that clear if I have some election commentary on this. So, um, look, there's, there's an important point here that you're making. What, what's been so disgraceful in the entire virus reaction to here is, first of all, we don't talk about the costs of what we've actually done at all. Uh, we act as if it's nothing but – we act as if the lockdown was only an economic cost, where, according to the data, according to the CDC director himself, uh, more young people have committed suicide than died of the Chinese coronavirus. That's just incredibly tragic, uh, and that should really be addressed. And so closing schools, I think, is a total and complete mistake, and I think it's hyper-political. I think that this is societal and cultural waterboarding. I think that they want to keep us under the water till we tap out and say no more. We're going to elect somebody on the other side that's going to get us out of this. And it's actually really incredibly demonic what has happened in our country, and I don't use that lightly, where we, we have people that are perfectly fine seeing human suffering because they think it keeps it fits their their political agenda and i think that that is so incredibly backwards and awful um where they are basically like yeah it's you know the the, the, the like for example cnn has that daily death toll on cnn where it's just the only reason they are doing that is because they know it makes the current incumbent look bad i mean there's there's no other reason to do that there isn't it's just inc- you think anyone watches that and they think they get excited it's like it's of course not Right? It's, a, it's a propaganda campaign to get people deflated. What do I think is going to happen? I, don't, I think a lot of schools are not going to open. If your college is not opening and they're not giving you a refund and they're not giving you a discount for just a Zoom call, 
I know what I would do. I don't know. I, you guys can choose whatever you want to do, but I think that is a f- ridiculous scam and a ripoff. I would get the heck out of that school and go find something worth m- my money. But I'm not telling you what to do. I'm saying what I would do. Two different things. Because um, I, I tend to be a little bit more, uh, let's just say, individually bold. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I, it's just so troubling to me because I know so many of you, a lot of you guys are going into debt to go to college. A lot of you guys are borrowing money. A lot of you guys are you know, really leveraging your future on the, on the hope that college is going to deliver something meaningful for you. And I hope that it will. I really do. And you guys are driven. You guys being involved in Turning Point is actually probably the most valuable thing a lot of you are going to get out of going to college, actually. So you guys are great. So uh, congratulations for that, um, more so than some of the other people. Um, and so I, I do think, but, but one thing that's really missing for those campuses that have shut down, first of all, I'm torn on this because obviously campuses tend to vote liberal. Um, and so because of that, a lot of the Democrat ballot harvesting tactics are actually going to be stunted if campuses aren't open. How are they going to find everyone's ballots to go collect in some of these campuses in the key battleground states, right? The same day voting and on-campus voting. So Democrats are actually being met with a challenge how they shut down the campuses. They lose a huge potential voting constituency. Um, and I think it's both, both ways. I actually think Trump is going to do better with younger voters than people think, and that's just my own opinion. But, but I actually think the Trump people that are young are actually going to vote whether they're at home or not. I actually think that we're motivated enough that we're going to vote. So I actually think it Campus is being closed in a very bizarre way is actually going to help Donald Trump politically, even though it's not the right thing to do morally, so go figure that one out. Um, I, I think the Democrats are actually going to realize in late October, again, I'm saying this personally, not on behalf of Turning Point, I think they're going to realize in October that their voting numbers, early voting, are going to be way down in key battleground states, especially in college districts, because the colleges are closed. And they're going to realize, like, how do we find all these people? And they're super apathetic, and they're smoking weed at home, and like, we can't get them to do anything. And like, the, whole, the whole brilliance for them is same-day voting and driving people to the polls, all that, the last couple days before an election, is the college campus, everyone is so geographically clustered together. You guys have seen it happen. Anyone in Texas? I don't go to school in Texas. No? Yeah, you saw what they did for Robert Francis O'Rourke in 2018. I mean, it was unbelievable. On-campus voting was insane. I saw it happen myself. I visited University of Texas Austin and Texas State in the same day, and there were lines around the block to go vote for Robert Francis O'Rourke. I can't imagine how that doesn't help them, how that how that. How that let me phrase it properly. I can't imagine how this is a good thing for them. That's probably a better way to word it. But campus is being closed in that way. Seriously. And so I don't think they're actually gaming this thing out correctly. I don't. Um, and so keep a close eye on that. Number two, some political news. Uh, Republican voter registration is outpacing Democrat voter registration in almost every key battleground state, which is a very good thing. So. Um, Again, I'm speaking politically here, so it's personal. I have to do these disclaimers or else, whatever, you guys know. Um, your life will be destroyed. They'll put you in prison and all this sort of stuff. So I'm saying, talking about this personally, not on behalf of the organization, um, is the, I, 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 I've been very vocal against some things I think could have gone differently and some governing style stuff, but especially on a state level. But I actually think that if I look at the trend lines and the popularity on things, I actually think this, nas- this race is narrowing at a rocket pace. I think a lot of people are missing what's actually happening in this race, which is that there's going to be a late break, I think, for the president, the likes of which is going to be really hard to even manifest into polling. Uh, even in a Democrat poll recently, it had Donald Trump only down two points in Pennsylvania, which, he, he, I mean, he was down four points in a similar poll, you know, a week before and six points the day before the election. And so I think it's going to be a late breaker, especially especially if Republicans 
do their job of being able to communicate what a decent and civil society is. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of a challenge at times for Republicans to be able to do that. But look, the cultural side of this, the left really has, I think, they've gone far too belligerent and far too aggressive. And I think that it's really interesting. I think I'm actually going to talk about this on TV tonight, which is that Joe Biden is he's going he's going to be one of the few candidates ever who I think knows he's going to take a hit downward as soon as he announces his VP. You see, usually when you announce your VP, it's going to be a lift for you. And I think he knows whomever he announces, it's going to make his entire campaign far more attackable. And since he is mentally incapacitated to be president of the United States, yeah. it actually becomes a ref- yeah, it's true. It actually then becomes a referendum on the vice president more so than the president. People say, well, I can't wait for the debates. If I was Biden, I wouldn't debate. I wouldn't. Um, and he might not. Uh, and if he does, the, our numbers will go up further. Uh, vote by mail is one of the few things I think that could really hurt uh, the president just because ballot harvesting and voter fraud and all of that, people getting multiple ballots, all these sorts of things. But I think that Biden, it, Biden knows one thing, if he knows anything at all, or his team, Biden's team knows that the vice president, if they pick Senator Harris, or if they pick that communist Barbara Bass, or whatever her name is, who is basically like Fidel Castro's you know, PR woman or something, I don't know, something like that. Um, whomever they pick, all of a sudden, decent Midwesterners, where I come from, right, in Wisconsin and all these places, all of a sudden, like, hold on a second. I might not like the tweets and the tone, but that is not the country that I'm comfortable living in. And all of a sudden, it becomes a real referendum on decency and reason and civil society and law and order and a stable economy. And I think the, the president's biggest challenge going into early September is kind of winning the COVID primary in August. That's his biggest political challenge. Uh, he has to demonstrate whether through hydroxychloroquine or whatever it is that there is some sort of treatment that is working. Blood plasma is a great idea and more people are doing it. Um, but he, th- th- that is a huge concern for people that are over the age of 40. And if he can turn that corner and actually turn it into a positive and have some momentum, then all of a sudden his numbers will get even better. But the fact that he's down two points in Pennsylvania with a Democrat poll, despite you know these very, and some people would say, troubling virus numbers, I mean, that shows that it's his race to lose in a lot of different ways. And not, no one else is going to tell you that, right? People say, oh, Donald Trump is down 18 points. So I read the article this morning, Donald Trump's down 18 points. But yeah, in a national poll, I mean, who cares about national polls, right? New York and California, it doesn't matter how many times they vote against him. We got it. He's going to get those electoral votes. Um, but... Again, once they, once they nominate that vice president, it's going to become a lot easier to be able to kind of personalize and to manifest the radicalism that, that Donald Trump has already been trying to deflect on Biden. Be like, oh, Biden's nice, he's all this. So Biden's trend is going to be really bad because more and more people are going to believe Joe Biden has dementia and has mental cognitive problems. That's only going to go up. It's not going to go down, right? More and more people are going to believe that the Biden presidency is going to be more radical, not moderate. Right. So that's going to go in that direction. And only more more people are going to believe that Donald Trump is suited for another four years. That's going to go up. Those are three trends, none of which actually favor the opposition. The question is this. I think they've maxed out their Trump hatred vote. I do. I don't think that's going to grow any further. So their pathological hatred of the president is real. There's people that believe in it. That's fine. I don't think that pie is going to increase. I think they're actually at a moment where they've hit the apex and so once they're there, they're actually freaking out. That's why they're running advertisements so much on Fox News and on cable television, because they, their strategy to victory is to take away moderate Republicans to go vote for Joe Biden. I, actually, I think that's actually going to work in our favor. Okay, next question. Thank you.
Okay, this is another online question. Uh, David Kirker asks, in these troubling times, what do you think about the Patriot Act? Should it be repealed? Why or why not? Yeah, that's a really good question. Wow. Um, I always get the best questions from our activists because you guys actually care about policies. You know, I, I speak at other places. They're like, now are taxes good or are they bad? <laughs> so it's refreshing. Um, refreshing to be around them. Yeah, the Patriot Act, I generally am against government domestic surveillance of citizens. In fact, I, I've become to really, I, I hate centralized power more and more than ever before. I hate centralized power at Google. I hate centralized power at the tech companies. I hate centralized power at the National Security Agency. So yeah, I, I, I think, I don't agree with him on everything. He's a dear friend. I agree with him on most things, probably more than any other senator. I think, I, I'm probably with Rand Paul on this one, to be honest with you, that I think that it's outrageous that we have given away our civil liberties to tyrants in the federal government that could spy, spy on us because they get some sort of ridiculous warrant by a judge who's corrupt. They used it against the entire Trump campaign, and they'll use it against all of us too. And I, that, that's not outlandish to say. Now, some people say, well, it's helped catch terrorists and all that. That's fine. Just give me some evidence of that. And I've never seen that provided. Now, maybe it's classified. Um, but if really, if like all this, that's what you always get, like the Lindsey Graham types, they always say, oh, it's terrific, it's all these sorts of things, we get, we've arrested all these terrorists, that's fine, I don't even need to know names, I just need to know numbers and like maybe time spans of how many terrorists have actually been arrested because of the Patriot Act, maybe that would help inform my argument better, right, like let me know some, maybe 15 terrorist attacks have been thwarted because of it, that's never been provided, in fact, it's only been kind of a boogeyman out there, like, oh yeah, it's helped prevent Really? Like, okay, but I, I, it's fine if it's true. I mean, I, I, that's, that would help actually inform myself better. But I think that when you give that much power to a certain group of people, whether it be in private industry or even in the federal government, they're going to abuse that power. So next question. Uh, hi, Charlie. So I am a history education major, and um, I recently have been asking myself, is it even worth it? Because we just see people trying to take down our history. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is my favorite founding father, so like he's being slandered like crazy. So I guess my question is, how do I fight back at that in the classroom and actually say that, yes, while these people aren't perfect, they're still better than what yeah. is saying they are? So um, what school do you go to? Illinois State. Illinois State. Yeah, normal Illinois. Anything but normal. Um, Bloomington normal. I know Illinois State really well. So yeah, look, I, um, I wouldn't even give them that big of an inch, to be honest with you. I wouldn't even, I would say, you know, like for, let's take Thomas Jefferson, for example, right? I mean, it's pretty well documented that he was a flawed individual. It's also equally well documented. He was the first president to abolish incoming slaves coming into our country in 1807. It's pretty well documented that obviously he did own slaves. He also introduced a bill to abolish slavery in his home state in the 1780s. So my, my, my piece of advice for you guys is when, you, when these historical figures pop up, know your stuff, obviously, but don't go out of your way to try to insult these incredible titans that built our civilization. I think it should be fair, right? I, I'm not saying you should avoid the negative. You could probably say, yeah, of course. Of course he did think, but I actually think the positives way outweigh the negatives. Like, it's not even close. I mean, people are saying, now, George Washington is the worst person ever. I mean, the entire civilization was built because of him, right? So it's either you like the civilization or you don't. I'm going to judge him based on what has happened since George Washington. And it's like the greatest thing ever to happen since Jesus Christ, okay? So, I mean, I think it's one of the greatest things in the history of the planet is the creation of this country and the impact that we've had on, our, on the planet. And so that's one piece of advice on that. And to answer your question whether or not it's worth it, uh, you know the answer to that. I don't, but I can give you some questions to ask yourself, which is, do I, am I going to give up because of what they're saying or because I truly believe if I keep on going, it's just going to be an endless circle? Does that make sense? 
And so that would be my one piece of advice to you. But also when we talk about the historical figures, understand that those statues were probably put up for a pretty good reason. I, I, that's, that's a good thing that I've learned, actually. I'm not saying every single Confederate statue came, was like the greatest person ever. That's not what I'm saying. Um, my, my ancestors literally fought in the United States Civil War for the Union side. So I'm not exactly, you know, I, I, don't, I don't actually support taking down these statues in the Confederacy. I have a contrarian opinion on this uh, because I actually think that there's, there's nuance and there's a reason why we were able to form one country post-Civil War. And part of it was that the Confederacy was given flexibility to remember people that they knew and family members that fought for sovereignty and state sovereignty of there. And I also think it's incredibly insulting to the American South. It's basically just us putting our fingers into Southerners saying, like, you're stupid. Um, and if any of you that grew up in suburban Chicago, I was taught this. Anyone south of the Mason-Dixon line that has a Southern accent, I was taught was stupid growing up. If you think about it, a lot of the, the films, a lot of the movies was always portraying Southerners as really dumb. And I find it incredibly insulting because a mass majority of our military is made up of people from a collection of six states, which is Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, North Carolina, and Georgia, and Tennessee. And these are great states. And all of a sudden, white liberals coming in because they think they're the greatest people in the world saying we have to remove these statues in places they've never visited. I just think that's, I just think it's incredibly disingenuous. I also think let the local communities do it themselves if they so choose. But why now? I think that's another question is why now? Like, what is your, what is your, I mean, if you really want to go rename Fort Bragg, I guess, and probably not, I would support it, but now, now's the reason to do it? I don't think so. So anyway, that's my question about history. I'm going to go a little longer than another 10 minutes because I'm going to push the boundary, but thank you. Appreciate it. So if that's okay with you guys, so. Uh, thank you, Charlie, for taking my question. Um, my question is, given the normalization of anti-American rhetoric in the media and academia, what advice would you give for Americans who are afraid to show pride in their country? Yeah, wow. Um, the fact that people are afraid to show pride in their country is a pretty pretty telling and troubling thing, isn't it? Um, I guess my first question is, well, why are you afraid? What are you afraid of? Oh, no, personally, no. Not you. No, no, I know that. I'm asking more rhetorically. So. Uh, I'm, not, more I'm so not putting you on the spot, trust no, me. No, thank you. I guess it would be more so in the broader sense, given you know a lot of the racial turmoil that has been going on in the last two months, as far as far as that stemming from the death of Ahmaud Arbery and yeah. George Floyd, you see a lot of the anti-American and even explicitly a lot of anti-white rhetoric that is coming from a lot of these cultural elites, from celebrities, yeah. from people within academia, government institutions. I, I, I think, first of all, those of us that love our country, we can't give any more terrain. No, no, that's why the statue thing. But I was like, we're not giving another in. And so, well, it's not that, you know, I, I hear some of these center-right people, and they're like, yeah, we live in a good country. Like, hold on a second. Like, we, we live in the greatest country ever to exist. I mean, own it, man. I mean, this country was, it's so improbable this thing even exists. It's even less improbable that it actually succeeded around foundational first freedoms. It's the first country to that date that was actually pondered upon and not founded accidentally, very important point, that most of human history was almost always one civilization taking over land from another, and they were just imposing their traditions, where this was something completely new, where they just said, stop the clock, what do we believe in? That never happened before, ever. Usually it was like, ah, oh, we're related to you, let's go take over that land, and we're going to put on your traditions. Rome was basically an accident. Greece was an accident. I mean, there were things that were theorized and built, and it was an outgrowth, but it wasn't a cure time where they said, what do we believe? And the smartest people of their time, the most well-bred people of their time, started to have these kind of discussions. And the discussions were pretty incredible, where they said, well, we believe in something that 
has really never been tried before. John Locke articulated it, and Thomas Jefferson was beautifully wrote it in the Declaration of Independence. And they said, we actually believe that human beings are meant to flourish, free of government intrusion and tyranny. We actually believe in first principles and natural rights, and we believe in private property, and we believe in being able to speak your mind, and we believe in the rugged individual, but also the strong family. And so then they started this thing, no different than just starting something ex nihilo in a biblical analogy, out of nothing. They breathed it into existence. That's a really important point, because all these apparatchiks and all these far left-wing arsonists and radicals, they haven't built a dang thing in their entire life, okay? They can't make their bed, let alone found a country, okay? And so just think of the boldness it takes to start something New. It was, it was an outgrowth out of the colonies before, but it was something, it was so different. It was so new. It was so transformational. Then they fought for it. And it was never a question of whether or not slavery was going to be abolished. It was always a question of how they were going to do it. In the United States Constitution, the document that the self-righteous prick, Colin Kaepernick, says that he hates. In the Constitution, it says that the slave trade will be abolished 20 years after the, after the ratification of the, Decla- uh, the U.S. Constitution in 1787. I think it was December 4th. 20 years after that, the first day that it was able to be done, Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner himself, the third American president, signs into law a moratorium of all new slaves coming into the United States, the first country to do so. Wow. The the year after the Declaration of Independence was signed, Vermont abolished slavery in year 1777. Before we were even a sovereign country, we were already abolishing slavery because they were inspired by the Declaration of Independence. So your question's about anti-Americanism. Um, I, I have a belief in this. Anti-Americanism is an outgrowth of people, first and foremost, that are not comfortable with themselves or their lives or the direction of the decisions they've made. And they deflect all of that inner hatred, misery, onto the country around them. These are unhappy people that want the rest of the country to be unhappy alongside of them. You see, miserable people can do incredible damage to a society if they act pathologically. People that have their life together that's an organized life that is full of responsibility and meaning, which all of you have, you probably don't want to destroy the society all around you. It's probably not on your radar. But imagine how much nihilism and how much hopelessness it takes to all of a sudden want to destroy the country. So to answer your question, it's this very, very dangerous combination. You have miserable, helpless, hopeless people, and also you have overly entitled, spoiled brats that have never worked a day in their life, that have been told everything around them is awful, and it makes them emotively feel good because they have no meaning because they grew up in nothing but riding in Mercedes-Benz in the upper middle class of America, and they think that they're doing the right moral thing by deconstructing all of this society. It's called white guilt, and it's incredibly dangerous, and it is evil. It is. Because unless you did something personally, if you own slaves, go check yourself into prison, okay? Right now. If you support slavery, you're awful, okay? But if you just happen to look like someone who once owned slaves, well, then you didn't do anything wrong. You're your own individual human being. Like, that wasn't you. And people are like, oh, you're related to that person. Okay, that's what we do now? We do blood guilt? Really? Okay. Well, then the entire Democrat Party should just be abolished under blood guilt, I guess. I mean, they... I mean, so, so it's incredibly dangerous with that. And it's also, it's, it's accelerating because... When people, when people lose faith in a system, which is what's happening, it could spread like a virus. So, all right, next one. Hey, Charlie, appreciate the time. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but I was just curious um, with the 
vote by mail legislation that's going yeah. to be passed right now. Uh, take California, some traditionally uh, red seats have been flipped by ballot harvesting. Um, so what do you, so kind of just a two-part, but it goes hand in hand, what do you think the uh, odds of this legislation being passed uh, is going to be? And then also just how destructive is it? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, in California, they've already pretty much decreed that it's going to happen. It's incredibly destructive. And a lot of the states that are trying to do it, they shouldn't. And look, I know people that have gotten multiple ballots. I know people that move, they pass away, they still get ballots. And entrusting our entire political system in the hands of the U.S. Postal Service is a pretty astonishingly stupid thing to do. Um, and it's a tactic. The left knows exactly what they can do and how they can do it. And here, here's something that I just can't understand. If you can go show up for a funeral for John Lewis, why can't you go vote? And that's what I can't understand. That's a really strange thing. Um, I mean, if you, can, if you can show up in the streets by the tens of millions to go protest outrage, how awful we are as a country, why can't you go show up to the voting booth to go tell us how awful the country we are? Very perplexing to me. So, um, and I'm not discounting that some people need to vote absentee, but it's always been that you're trying to keep the absentee voting population sub two percent. It's always been kind of the the thought process. And so I I don't I actually don't talk about this publicly enough, but I, I was an election judge growing up. A lot of you guys know what election judges are. I encourage you to do that in Illinois, one of the most corrupt states in the country. And an election judge, you show up, you get trained, you actually run the election process alongside six or seven other people at a precinct or at a certain place where people vote. And so it was really an interesting experience. I did it once, uh, twice actually, and I, I saw how it worked. People come in, they sign in. They don't have to show voter ID, which was insane to me, but they come in, suburban America, right near Wheeling, Illinois, and they go and vote. You don't see how they vote, but every single time someone votes, a Republican and Democrat election judge need to sign off that it was unethical, it was done correctly. And so I saw the final vote tally at the end of the day, at the end of all of it, and we get all the results of how everyone voted right, and how the machine was reflected. And it was a center-right community, I could tell that. So I guessed in my head, like, yeah, Romney will get about 68% of the vote, and it was just about that, which was really interesting because it showed that the data that was coming out of the machine was actually the projection, so there was no funny business happening in the machine. And so then, mind you, this was its own separate domiciled election voting area, right? It was its own, per it was its own area. And so I saw that, like, 147 people voted. I said, okay, 147. I go back home later that night. I go to the Chicago Tribune website and I got really curious. I said, let me go look up that precinct and see how many people voted. And I saw 147 people voted and I had faith in the system. I was like, wow, that's really cool. So 147 people showed up, 147 votes reported. I saw it myself. I was a citizen election judge. Like, okay, I can see how that works. There's no such system that exists like that with vote by mail. It doesn't, it does not exist. You send the ballot and there is no one that's overseeing it. There's no citizen reporting. There's no oversight. You send it. You do not know what happens. And so the decentralized idea of elections actually work really well. Um, there's still voter fraud, and they mostly happen in Democrat urban areas and by vote by mail and voter registration fraud, which is a whole different thing than voter fraud, but it's within it. But I'm saying that generally in these battleground states, we have to do everything we possibly can to make sure that the institutions that have actually worked pretty well, generally well, need to stay that way. If we get vote by mail, forget it. They are going to cheat their way to victory. So next question. Thank you. Hi, Charlie. My name is Lacey, and I'm from Binghamton University. In the current political climate, we see American flags being desecrated and burned. Conservatives seem divided on whether burning the American flag is a form of free speech. Yeah. Some people are saying that we can bring patriotism and unity back by proposing an amendment to the Constitution to make it illegal. So my question is, should burning the American flag yeah. be protected by the First Amendment? Yeah, it's, I've done a lot of thinking about this. Not all conservatives agree with this, but... Um, I'm a free speech absolutist, and so I really am. And it, it, boy, do I think that someone should be arrested for burning the flag. 
I actually don't, and it's it's a hard thing for me to say. And of course, you guys know I don't support it. I think it's outrageous and it's immoral. But I actually think, I, I, by being a free speech absolutist, I think that if it's someone's own private property that they've purchased that happens to be the symbology of our country, if they want to burn it and be a lunatic and a fool and an anti-American, I think they actually do have a right to do that. And I don't say that lightly because I think about the extrapolation of the consequences of how they're going to try to restrict our speech and try to unfairly use rules like that against us. And so I actually think that it works against them, though. I actually think that the more flag burning there is, the more that they actually lose public opinion. Um, and so I, I don't say that lightly. And not all conservatives agree with me. They think that it should be protected. It's so special. It's so sacred and all that. I'm not, I'm not sure I see it. I'm not, I, of course, I see it as a sacred part of it, but I'm not sure I, I, I'm willing to use the full force of the United States government to convict and penalize somebody for doing that. And so it's, it's not something I come at lightly because it makes me so physically sick to my stomach to see the U.S. flag even properly, you know, improperly handled, let alone burned uh, like it is. And I think that if we're talking about penalizing burning the flag, we're, to, we're already, we have to ask ourselves, why do people want to burn the flag in the first place? Okay, that's the bigger question. The question is because we've raised a country that hates our country. <laughs> so, I mean, it should be socially unacceptable to go burn the flag. And I think that's a much, it's a much more important cultural conversation than it is a political or legal one, even though I think it is reprehensible and disgusting when someone burns the American flag. So thank you for the question. Hello, Charlie. Recently, I've been attacked for opposing Black Lives Matter. And you say we're going to be subject to comments and name calling from classmates and members of our student body. That's something we unfortunately will just have to deal with. However, when it comes to attacks and rude comments toward me as a student for my school administration, what should we do? How can I continue to be passionately and proudly conservative when my school administration is keeping track of my conservative Instagram page and directly targeting me? What should I do in response to my administration targeting me as a conservative student? What school? I'm, I'm in a private high school in Cleveland, so I prefer not to. Okay, jeez. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would get your parents very involved in that. My goodness. I mean, that is... Good. I mean, that is Gestapo-style tactics. I'm sure all of you guys have felt something like that. Um, when it's the administration and their power source, um, that's really a, that's a tough thing. I mean, the, the best piece of feedback or advice that I can give you is that, um, that they, don't, they, they do that out of their own insecurity and their own boredom, honestly. I mean, imagine how incredibly comfortable your life must be if you can go spend looking your time on a conservative student's Instagram page and monitoring what they're posting. And they printed it out, yeah. Um, yeah, and I hope that all the adults in the room realize what's happening here, that our kids are being targeted by the very people that are supposed to be instructing them. And that's what happens when you sit, send your kids off to these schools. And it just makes me sick to my stomach that some conservative donors keep on giving money to these schools. Like, oh yeah, let me give money so that Conservatives can keep on spot, you know, we, our conservatives can be spied on every single year. It's outrageous. I don't have a really good piece of applicable advice, but I'll give you some general advice. Um, you will learn more about how tyrants operate through this exercise than anything else. And when, when any of you have tyranny that comes across your radar screen, confront it head on and do not give an inch. Look clearly in their eyes and speak confidently and do not be afraid to call them out for the bullies and the megalomaniacs that they are because they're not used to that. You guys all know this when dealing with bullies on, you know, in your upbringing. The number one thing that those people hate is confrontation. They're actually non-confrontational people. And so bring it straight to them. 
directly, clearly, get your words right. And, and, and they will not know how to process that. But what's happening to you is evil, make no mistake. And that's really what's happening as a fight right now of darkness versus light. And that's a whole different conversation, different time. But the fact that a high schooler is afraid that their administration is spying on them and potentially printing out their stuff and you could be reprimanded, um, that's evil. It just is. There's no other way to put it. And that you might be penalized for it. So hold the line. We have your back. You have lots of new friends here. And thank you for being here. Okay? Thank you. Last question? Yes, this is your last question. Cool. Hi, Charlie. My name is Maria. I'm from Cuba. And I am recently starting a Training Point USA chapter in my high school. Um, thank about, you for being here. Thank you. Uh, about BLM and how it has become a trend within Generation Z and like people our age, um, I see an opportunity here to try to convert students who have never been involved in politics and all of a sudden think that posting Black Square is a form of activism. So my approach for my chapter, I would like to try to like convert these um, liberals who do not yet understand um, the value of conservatives and they are influenced by the uh, the mistaken like uh, profile that the media have created of what conservatives are. So what is your advice for my approach? Yeah, so I would take a different tact than I did and I think you're doing the right thing. So. I, uh, you don't, guys, you guys don't have to be as aggressive as I am with this stuff, trust me, okay? I do that to give you guys cover fire, okay? Seriously, I do that so I can say things that you guys don't, you can't always say because there's a huge cost and, you know, share my stuff, all that, and just say, oh, it's Charlie saying it, go after him, that's fine. Like, what are they going to, I get, seriously, I do that, I do that to help protect you guys and put a shield and so you guys can live, hopefully, decent lives. So, um, I think that, I think your approach is correct. Absolutely correct. It's a persuasive one where you look at people not as a enemy, but as the opportunity. I think that's a really good approach. Um, and I think that, especially at an elemental high school level, um, it's important to it's 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 important to be able to communicate exactly what we as Americans stand for. And I think a very easy terrain, if I were to give you advice on this, is you should just ask people. And this is a very uncomfortable conversation for some people to have is, do you think race matters? And they'll say, oh, no, then why are we talking about it so much? And they'll say, well, it's because uh, black people are doing worse than, than white people say. Is it because of their race or other reasons? And if they say it's because of their race, well, then they're a eugenicist, and that ends that conversation, right? Or maybe there's other reasons why certain communities that are black or Hispanic or whatever, why they have different outcomes besides racism or despite, despite besides um, believing that one skin color might be an awful skin color or a good skin color, which is an evil thing to believe. And that's what's so amazing is that the left has actually personified the very same racism that they say that they want to fight. I mean, these are the most racist people on the planet. I mean, I, I have to watch the Smithsonian Institution Black History Museum post a graphic that says that showing up on time, working hard, going to church, and building a family are all attributes of whiteness, and whiteness must be destroyed. 
and this was the Smithsonian Black History Museum. If you guys didn't check it out, you can check it out. Uh, funded by our taxpayer dollars. And so I just have a very simple question for them, which is, how is that any different, any different at all, than what somebody in the 1930s Germany would have said about white people? How is that any different? Where somehow what works is an attribute of a skin color. It's not. It's like the left has now become everything that we knew they always were, which is the, the proponents of racial division and of racial hierarchy. I actually want to live in a post-racial America. I grew up in um, that America. I, I mean, I grew up in an America where my high school, Wheeling High School, was 53% Hispanic. I was the minority as the white kid, but we didn't look at our differences. We just got along and we lived our life. And I read this ridiculous pile of garbage recently of this article, Why All the Black Kids Sit Together at the Cafeteria, and she wrote a book or something. I said, what high school are you talking about? My high school wasn't that way. I mean, maybe you want that. And understand, the left wants a very racist society. They do. They want black-only math classes, which exist on campuses all across the country. They want black-only dormitories. I don't know if any of you guys are, go to any of those schools that have those. Or they want black-only learning centers. Or they want white people to take knees because of everything they've done wrong, even though they individually did nothing wrong at all. So they themselves have become the very same demon that they say they want to slay. And so look at them as the opportunity, wherever you want. And I encourage you to do that. And I think that we should be more unafraid if we have conservatives. And we, we do this light. We, we're very careful about this because like, we want to be decent. We be I get all that. But I think we should be unafraid to call these people out for what they really are. And I did that the other day, about two, three weeks ago, with this racist liberal uh, by the name of Leslie Marshall who was defending the whiteness thing. And I called her a racist on air. And she didn't know what to do. She'd never been called that before. She's like, well, don't you know all my black friends? I'm like, ah, now you know what it's like to be called a racist, you stupid lunatic. Um, like, we get called it every single day. And so she, she, had, she had no comfortable response because we have to deal with it all the time, which is untrue and wrong. But that's really what they've become. I don't say that lightly. I don't. And we also have to understand that racism can happen in all forms. It could be black people against white people, Hispanic people against black people, black people against Hispanic people, white people against black people. That racism is not a power struggle. That's what they try to make it seem. And that's really what it is. They say, well, racism is about power. Like, what are you talking about? Racism is an is a individual who does not believe in another individual or hate them or prejudice them or whatever based on just simply the color of their skin. It has nothing to do with power at all. I mean, it has something to do with the discrimination just based on immutable characteristics. And so that's my piece of advice for you. Final point, then I know we got to move on. We've been a little delayed. A couple takeaways. Number one, stand up to anyone in your life that uses a position of strength to exploit the weak. That's called tyranny. So think in your life, it can be an employer, it could be a university president, whatever it is, and all it takes for that to metastasize and grow is for you to be complicit with that, okay? So here, here's, the, here's the bigger point with that, which is if we're looking at, the reason why this nonsense was able to grow as quickly as it was is that there weren't enough people like us speaking out confidently enough to stop the lies as they came out. Lies that are not confronted become popular opinion very quickly. So that's what happens when we don't hold the line. So in your little sphere of influence, think to yourself, who is a tyrant that really needs to be called out? Right? Who is a tyrant where you have to look clearly in their eyes and say, you're done. 
what you are doing is immoral and I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. And I'm going to say this every day and every hour and you might not like it, but that's what you're going to have to deal with because what you're doing is evil. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. It could be a teacher, a professor. It could be, God forbid, a family member, right, that is doing this to you. And that's the other thing is be careful not to get into endless social media arguments, but don't allow social media untruths that are coming across your community to go without you standing up for truth and for facts. And by the way, do not discount the one comment, one comment mic drop. Don't discount this. Facebook and Instagram, leave one fire comment, turn notifications off and get out and never go back. <laughs> it's one of the greatest mind tricks ever in the history of social media because they'll start piling on and getting their friends and you never respond, but your argument just stands clear and true, right? And you revisit it in two weeks and it has like 2,000 likes. You're like, wow, I made a lot of people mad. Like, that was awesome. <laughs> and the point is this, is that all of you have a moral obligation to continue to fight. So two things. You guys are the backbone of what we do at Turning Point USA, the largest student organization in the country, fastest growing, still gathering, still meeting, as you saw through Turning Point Action, host of the president, we hosted the president three times in one calendar year, and that's incredible. And that just goes to show the strength of what you're involved in here at Turning Point USA. You guys can always, and I encourage you to do that, if you have something that you really want to email our team, freedom at charliekirk.com. I actually do read those emails, believe it or not. I say that on my podcast a lot, freedom at charliekirk.com. You guys can do that. And I want you to understand that what Amy and Andrew have done here, what you guys are fighting for, this is a movement the likes of which is not supposed to exist. You understand that, right? Like, this is not supposed to happen. Like, it's not supposed to be that young people that love their country rise up and say no more. In fact, it's, it's the fact that we had 3,400 young people for the president, you didn't see much media about that, right? The, at all. I mean, it's incredible. 3,400 people? Yeah, well... Okay, yeah. 3,400 young people like that. And just even what's happening here, it's really something special. So know that you're part of a generationally impactful moment in our country's history where what you are doing very well might save civil society. So multiply yourself, find more people like yourself. Get to know as many people in this room as you possibly can. Stand very firm and hold the line. It will come at a cost, but it's worth it. And you will be amazed at how successful you actually are. And we have your back here at Turning Point every day, every single day, right? I'll keep on taking the body blows personally, which is whatever, Turning Point and otherwise, right? But this is a standing army that I think is America's last best hope. I really do. I've lost faith in so many things. There's a reason why we at Turning Point USA are hiring more staff next week or we are expanding our operation what you guys are doing are really going to save this republic. All right. Thank you guys so much. It's been awesome. Thank you. What a great conversation that was with the future of our country. Turning Point USA activists, tpusa.com, tpusa.com. Email me your questions always, freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. If you guys want to win a signed copy of the MAGA Doctrine, type in Charlie Kirk Show to your podcast provider. Hit that subscribe button and give us a five-star review. And please consider becoming a supporter of the Charlie Kirk Show at charliekirk.com slash support. Become a monthly supporter. Shipping $5, $10, $50. com slash support. Please listen to our sister episode of Kurt Schilling. More episodes coming up this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. God bless. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. 
and deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.